This is Divorce and Done with Rob and Darren. You're listening to the Best Divorced Podcast. Rob and Darren, the Best Divorced Podcast. The Best Divorced Podcast. Welcome back to Divorced and Done. I'm Rob Woodward, joined by Darren Schmidt. We're divorce lawyers, and we're answering your questions. Darren Schmidt, how you doing? Anyone still out there? I'm, I'm sure someone's listening. <laughs> like, we're here, I'm here, you're here. I'm here, you're there. We're there. We're all here through the wonder of the internet. How have you been? Tell us all how you've been. Darren Schmidt, I have been so good. You and I, well, me particularly, so but good. you and I have those rare days where we are, even though, as all of our listeners know, divorced and done steps, the notion of being divorced and done, we don't want to drag you through litigation. We don't want to drag you through insane and a long process. But sometimes, unfortunately, that does happen. You and I have had a few of those in the last year. And sometimes you have to do a lot of work uh, on a matter with your client, with an opposing party to get a decision. And sometimes things work out. And I had that experience today, which is great. So I am pleased as punch and other things are moving along. How are you doing? Well, you know this, but I am charting a path to becoming a mediator. So I've been yes. doing some training in Vancouver and going to finish off the formal part of the training in October of 2023. And then I have to do some practical work that's uh, directed by and overseen by some other mediators. And then hopefully I get a QMED, Qualified Mediator designation. And then fingers crossed, I can be approved by the Law Society of BC to do family law mediations sometime in the near future. That's the hope. And then anyone listening to this says, wow, that's uh, that's a great guy. Maybe I want to have him mediate my Absolutely. dispute. Just having, because you and I are, of course, lawyers, um, and we have lots of tools to help people move through their case as family lawyers, but we cannot meet with both parties at once to usher them through the divorced and done steps or the family law process. You have to be a mediator to do that. And I, you know what, you and I conduct our practices in the way a mediator would try and resolve a family law Absolutely case. Absolutely, we do. Anyway. Yes. yes. So I think it's just a natural step. I'm excited for that. Other than that, um, yeah, I think we're going to try and jump on here a little bit more to conclude the year. We've gotten busy. We've gotten flooded with weird... Um, MLM emails from people uh, wanting to scam our podcast. Don't We've we get got... enough of those? People asking us for money. Do you know, not just as, as you would say, to peek behind the curtain, you and I cut this episode. It takes you and I together maybe 20 minutes to edit the thing, put some music on it. We type up the show notes. We have no one else helping us with that anymore. We throw it up online. Yeah, 20 minutes to do that because we don't edit these after we record them. They're nope. generally one cut and done unless something real funky happens. And it goes online. We do that. We get so many solicitations. Hey, we'll edit your episodes for 50 bucks an episode or 100 bucks an episode. I, I, I don't know. Maybe we start responding to these things saying, sure, we'll engage your services uh, if you're willing to do it on a contingency basis for <laughs> share of the proceeds that uh, Darren and I receive, which if you're a long-time listener, you know the answer to that is zero. And we do this because we care about you, our audience. 
long way of saying, uh, again, it's just us. No one fancy, including even though there's apparently so many people, you get eight or nine emails, you said every day, folks soliciting to engage with our media project. Yeah. And I mean, just so everyone knows, we do care about this. We care about you. We've, we did gain a lot of momentum. I think we did like a hundred and close to 140 or around 140 Absolutely. episodes in less than two years. And that's on top of, you know, life and our, our work, like our work as lawyers, we're not full-time podcasters that we were cramming this in. There was times we were getting up like first thing in the morning before work, typically after work on weekends. And I think you and I just needed to step back a little bit and the refresh has been good, but we just, we have other stuff going on. doesn't mean we don't like this. doesn't mean it stops. just means we do it at our leisure and when we get an opportunity to, and we appreciate everyone that's still with us, still wants to be here because I still think not to toot our horns too hard here, but we're still probably the best um, access to justice venue for broadly for Canadians in the family law space and that you can send us your questions. We'll look at them. We have a lot still to get through, whether you're listening still or not, whatever, we're going to get through as many of these questions as we can. And I think that helps a lot of people. We've, we've gotten that feedback from you. So we, we want to keep doing that stuff. Rob, there's a few ways people can get us questions. Is that right? Absolutely. As always, if you send us a voicemail, we move you to the front of the line, speakpipe.com slash divorced and done, divorced A-N-D, done. So there's a whole bunch of Ds there uh, through the speakpipe. Or you can send us an email, lawyers talking about divorce at gmail.com. We keep you confidential and answer your question anonymously on this program. Thank you for everyone that even though we have not been actively and regularly cutting new episodes, we're still getting a lot of questions. So thank you for sending them. And for continuing to send them along. Darren Schmidt, we have a speak pipe speaking to the front of the line. Should we roll to that first? Let's roll it. Beautiful. Here we go. Hi, Robin, Darren. My ex and I are split parenting our two children. The younger lives primarily with me and the older 15-year-old with my ex. Our 15-year-old is turning 16 soon and has saved 50% of the cost of a used car and will pay for insurance, etc. My ex is asking if I'm willing to contribute to the purchase. If so, what percentage? His income is much higher. Is this considered a Section 7 item? Sometimes it can be a bit murky as to whether some items and activities are Section 7, such as trips to the salon, etc. It's all about trying to maintain the quality of life for your kids prior to separation, right? What's considered a treat or perk and what's a Section 7 item? Um, My ex bought our younger child a quad to ride when they're at his house in the country. He's wondering if I'd contribute to that cost too. It stays at his place. Should I be contributing to that or should we call it even since I pay for most of our older uh, daughter's clothing and other items that can be purchased in the city? Thanks for all your help. Podcast is much appreciated. It's helping to smooth out this very bumpy road on the way to being divorced and done. The listener asked a broader question, what is a section seven? So why don't we just pause on that? Because maybe there's someone listening that doesn't know what that phrase means, section seven. So I'll bounce the ball back at you. In a nutshell, section seven, what is it? What does it mean? Section sevens are extraordinary expenses, things that would be covered beyond base child support. And the classic examples are things like 
childcare, extracurriculars like hockey practice, sports the kids are in, orthodontics, other medical expenses that are necessary that aren't covered. And I don't want to jump to my response on this, but big ticket items like a car. A car is not a necessary expense for a child, just like a cell phone is not a necessary expense for a child, as we've covered previously on this show. Those big capital expenditures, in my mind, are not covered as Section 7 above and beyond special expenses. Yeah, I agree. I'm just pulling up Section 7 now. It's we should just, probably it, read it. Yeah, great. No, it's, it's okay. I won't read it because it is lengthy. Lengthy. But the uh, premise is exactly as you say, Rob. It's to capture those expenses that are not otherwise covered by the monthly amount of child support. So most things that are purchased for a child, directly or indirectly, are captured by the monthly amount. So food and school supplies and um, clothing, you know, those sort of things typically fall within the normal, ordinary purchases for a child. But there's some things that are exceptional expenses or special or extraordinary expenses. And the real test to determine whether it's a Section 7 expense is, number one, is it enumerated in Section 7? So that's your first thing. Um, that includes, as you say, Rob, child care expenses. Those have to be incurred as a result of employment or disability or education or training. You can't just take an afternoon off to go shopping, put your kid in daycare and treat it as a Section 7 expense. Uh, Health-related expenses. So these are things that are not otherwise covered by a benefits plan. Things like dental appointments, braces, uh, counseling, you know, those those sort of things. Uh, Extraordinary expenses for primary or secondary school education or other such sort of activities. So some people treat sports enrollment as a Section 7, although that's not strictly a uh, Section 7. Because the section actually says uh, extraordinary expenses for extracurricular activities. So it has to be an extraordinary type of expense arising from the activity itself or post-secondary school expenses. And that's not at play in this question. So nowhere, number one, nowhere in Section 7 does it say cars or ATVs are Section 7 expenses. So everyone can breathe a sigh of relief if you thought you were going to be on the hook for paying for a portion of one of those purchases vehicles, things of that nature, maybe a motorcycle, golf cart, who knows, could be any one of those modes of transportation, but those are not listed in section seven. Even if something's not listed in section seven, it doesn't mean that the category of things listed there are capped. A court has discretion to determine if it wants to expand the list, add something else. Um, And so the, um, the way you put it, Rob, is exactly right. The cars are not Section 7 expenses. Sounds like the child or children in this case paid for a portion, at least 50% of at least the vehicle. Um, it's probably not a reasonable expense. It's not something I'm aware of that courts have waded into and said, yeah, this is, a, it, this is truly a Section 7. So I don't think you have to worry about it. I know, but uh, the thing I like about the question is the, uh, the tone was, is it a Section 7? Not, this isn't a Section 7, and I want to kick up dust and make a fight. And it sounds like you, are you, the listener, are working on satisfying all the divorced and done steps. 
moving through the process as amicably as possible. So to that end, at least I'm guessing that I'm guessing from the tone of your question, those things to that end, I commend you. So keep pushing forward. And I want to chime in on that point, Darren, you're exactly right. Something interesting the listener said was our 16 year old child has saved up half the cost of this vehicle. How wonderful. Because you and I, even though we're not a financial services podcast or a financial health podcast, we often refer to some of the debt-free folks online, uh, including folks at Ramsey Solutions that we really do, Lee and I both personally like. Uh, And what a wonderful moment if you can get together with your ex to celebrate your child and say good for you in reaching this milestone. And as we've said, in terms of Section 7, yeah, a car isn't a Section 7, but maybe this is an opportunity for you to get together with your ex and say, what can we do together as our child's parents to help him or her fulfill this vehicle wish? Maybe you can contribute something to it. But even if you can't, to still celebrate your child and say good for you for personally reaching this financial milestone at 16, I believe, that's a great thing and a great moment for you and your ex and your child to still be a family together, even though you're divorced and still moving with the steps. So congratulations, and we wish you all the best. Okay, let's roll to a question that's come to us from TikTok, some of you like watching videos on there. Some of you like watching my videos and this listener apparently likes watching some of my videos. So thank you. A listener says, hi, Darren. I'm not sure um, what you think about this, but I'm a mom to a seven-year-old daughter. I've been struggling to get child support payments and I'm considering filing a contempt application in court, but I'm not sure if that's my best option. We have had a court agreement for some time, most recently is in June of 2022. Within this agreement, my ex is ordered to pay the table amount of $416 per month, plus $200 a month towards uh, $4,800 in total arrears as he was hiding income uh, the two years prior to making this court agreement or order. I received $492 for uh, September, October, and November of 2022 uh, when he went on EI. Uh, He returned to work in November of 2022. I advised the Provincial Maintenance Enforcement Program the same day. Uh, To date, I've received $263. I'm behind on rent. I'm struggling to afford groceries. Groceries. I have spoken with my ex six times since July, asking that he make the payments through the maintenance enforcement program. He refuses and says, uh, basically, it's up to them. Basically, he's shrugging his shoulders. I've stressed that it's his responsibility, but it seems there's no getting through to him. I've also been in consistent contact with maintenance enforcement, trying to get this resolved. Thanks in advance for any insight that you Mm. can offer. So... Rob, we have a arrears total of 4800 We have some intermittent payments here on child support, at least on the monthly amount. The listener is saying, look, I can't, I can't get by on a monthly basis unless I'm receiving this amount of money and has engaged the maintenance enforcement program. She's mentioning the notion of contempt. All of this 
packaged into a question I'll pose to you. What do you think this listener should do or what should, what's going on here? I'm so sorry to hear she's in this position, particularly she says pointedly, I'm behind on rent and struggling to afford groceries. I'm really sorry you're in that position. Uh, and given the monthly amounts that he should be paying from your review of last year, $416 plus 200 on arrears. I know that makes a difference, but given where rent and groceries are, that most certainly doesn't cover all of your rent and groceries. And that's likely not even a drop in the bucket for where the listener is. She notes he was on EI for September, October, November of last year. He's returned to work as of November last year. I hope if she knows what kind of work he's doing, that she perhaps can guess what his salary is, or maybe best guess, and look and check and see what his child support looks like online. Because if he's making considerably more money versus being on EI or whatever circumstances as of last June 2022, often we review child support orders, every child support order, annually at the end of June or beginning of July. That's the first thing I'm thinking of here. Check and make sure that number's still correct. Because if this guy has really any job or making really any money, I would hope that support might be a little bit higher or he can make more meaningful payments to those arrears. Now, in terms of enforcement, she does suggest some frustration with maintenance enforcement. And unfortunately, once you're registered with maintenance enforcement, you're really with the, you're in their hands with respect to what they do or they do not do in terms of enforcement. The benefit of maintenance enforcement is they have some special tools, including suspending payors driver's licenses and even their passports to encourage them to pay their arrears owing. You do have an option to leave the maintenance enforcement program and seek private enforcement, such as garnishing his paycheck or uh, attempting to garnish any bank accounts. If you've come through a divorce or a court matter, you might know where his bank accounts are, and you can privately garnish his bank accounts. But I would suggest the strongest thing the listener here could do, because he is working again, check and see what his income is. If you don't know or don't know where he's working, perhaps seeking updated financial disclosure through a request for financial information, then perhaps seeking to readjust the amount of support payable if he is making more money would be more beneficial and more fruitful than trying to make the determination either to continue with maintenance enforcement or to enforce this order privately, especially if it's on old income information that is significantly less than what he might be earning right now. I did a, a video uh, because this, uh, this listener comes from TikTok. I did a video. I was just looking back in March of 2023 this year. And in the video, I cite a Statistics Canada study. <clears throat> and the Statistics Canada study showed that of payors of spousal and or child support in Canada across all the provinces, only 36% were up to date on payments and in You're compliance. You're kidding. 36%. Wow. Because to nope, jump on that statistic, sure. you and I, when we represent payers, we, we don't really horse around with arrears. Most of the people in my experience that I and I, I think that you represent are up to date. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, I, I think 
you know, we can dig into the philosophy of why someone may, may be behind on payments or not yes. making payments or all of that. But I, I do think part of it is good lawyering on the, on the pay, payor yes. lawyer's part, encouraging them to comply with the order. I see nothing wrong if I'm advising payors to enroll in the maintenance enforcement program because it, it does this wonderful thing of eliminating direct contact on that financial issue on a monthly basis. They just take the money from you and it goes into the hands of your ex-spouse. It sort of eliminates that uh, element of contact about that recurring payment that's coming out of your account every month. So there's nothing ostensibly wrong. if Even if you're the payer, you can enroll in the program. But yeah, seeing that only 36% of people that were paying support through a maintenance enforcement program were up to date on all their payments was a little shocking. So that's, to that that's end, shocking to me. You didn't tell me this, and I, of course, haven't seen your TikTok since that time. Wow, I'm shocked. That's okay. You 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 don't want to go on the TikTok, and I appreciate that. Uh, I that, that's I too, a conversation for another chat. <laughs> I think that what this shows is the. The, the infrastructure at the maintenance enforcement programs is only so good. Likewise, your private enforcement of a debt is only so good. Exactly. If that person doesn't have the money, then they can't pay it. And there's no magic bullet to solve that problem. I don't think it's ever really advisable to jump out of the maintenance enforcement program to privately enforce something. I think more often than not, you just continue to work with your maintenance enforcement officer to try and get them to take some enforcement steps, the ones you've described, Rob, the passport and the, the driver's license and all those things. Those are wonderful tools at their disposal. However, the officers at these maintenance enforcement programs have a lot of discretion. So, of course, maintain communication with them. But think back to my statistic. Yes, there's a debt that's owing to you, but many, you may not take comfort in this, but realize many, many, many many people are, are also in the same shoes. They're in your shoes too, because lots of people aren't getting these payments. And it's just a sad reality of the system. There's people that, there's lots of private debts that aren't paid. Sometimes people don't pay their legal bills. And then the lawyer's stuck with, well, how do I get my money out of this person? Or a contractor's not paid by someone. Well, I got to get my money from them. It's a sad reality. It's a... Um, it's an old story, if you will. People don't pay their debts. The best thing you have here is the government can help you with it through the maintenance enforcement program. So stay with them and uh, keep moving forward. And um, sorry to hear that your ex is on the uh, the other side of that statistic and is a non-compliant person, but maybe they'll move forward. Um, just one last one. Time. Yeah, do you want to do another? Okay, let's, uh, let's do, do this one. Last one. Section 3 and Section 7 uh, child support calculations. I will summarize the question as best I can. Listener says, hi there, stumbled across um, your podcast while Googling imputation of income. Well, that's pretty cool. Someone's Googling stuff and our podcast came up. Imputation Very- of podcast. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Impute us into your life. Uh, is very informative. Thank you. And I'm in Alberta, so very relevant. Awesome. Okay. I have a few questions, please. Approaching uh, a tax year, filing as separated the first year I'd be doing so and calculating uh, child support under a 50-50 shared parenting arrangement. Um, 
I am the only one paying. My ex was a stay-at-home parent and continues to remain unemployed by choice. We separated in July of 2021. Um, We received an arbitration outcome, it appears, in December of 2021. So fairly quick turnaround, six months later. Uh, The house was sold in May of 2022. And... June 1, 2022, when a child and spousal support payment was to begin, and this listener was going to pay uh, support for three children on the child support side. Uh, Questions. My ex withdrew some RRSPs, Registered Retirement Savings Plans, in late 2022. Uh, His lawyer is saying they are exempt for consideration of his income for child support purposes because they were part of a pool of assets we already divided and we're, we're accounted for already. Is this the case? What exceptions are there to, to deductions from line 1500 on a tax return, gross income, for child support calculations? Would RRSP withdrawals ever count as income for calculating child support? All right, I'll jump in. Uh, yeah, it's the presumption that RRSP withdrawals are considered income uh, for the purpose of calculating child support. So that line 1500 income, on a person's tax return is presumed under the child support guidelines to be their income. You then move off that presumption and it's the onus of the person that wants to move off that presumption to prove why they should. And my uh, anecdotal experience dealing with RRSPs, both from a payor and a recipient is, and you can dive into the case law if you want, and, and there might be differing opinions from different courts, But the gist is, if the RRSPs were withdrawn and they were used as spending for income, like the the payor used them, and again, not a great way to withdraw money for its use, because of course they're taking a tax hit on it, but if they're using it for income, they're using it for spending, they're using it to buy a house, they're using it to buy a car, they're using it to buy groceries, pick a thing, then uh, it's... Uh, typically treated as income. If there's some exceptional use that they're applying it for, um, and I get that there was already some calculation as to a division of it in this case, but if it's withdrawn, the presumption would be that it's treated as as income. Do you have a different view on this, Rob? A different perspective, additional perspective? Um, I will be candid. I, I do agree with you on the treatment of RRSPs generally. In the realm of spousal support, so different than child support and different than the scope of this question, there's a case, and I don't, I think it's Supreme Court of Canada case. I believe it's called Boston and Boston from 2001. Yes. And it deals with the question of a pension and withdrawal on a pension later in life, whether that goes to income, because it was divided as property on someone seeking to retire. They did a property division while someone was working. Then they divide the pension at the time of divorce. Then later on in life, someone's drawing on the pension. Should that increase their income for the purposes of assessing spousal support in the future? And in that instance, the court said no. So in my mind, that's contrary to what you've just said. Darren, but in the purpose of child support, I absolutely agree. Generally, when anyone draws on an RSP or some registered asset, it is included for income for the purposes of support. The instant notion of perhaps in the same year where you did some property division and had some withdrawal, should that be included? 
maybe there would be some argument against including that in income. I don't know of that immediately because, of course, I just drew that analogy to the pension case, but that's an entirely different circumstance because that deals with spousal support, not child support. So my instance response would be, Darren, I do stand with you on the general notion because if you divided this RSP and you were divorced five years ago, five years later, he's drawing that as income. You betcha. I would say we're including that in terms of income. So I think, Darren, you're probably right, but there is some specified instances in certain areas where we wouldn't necessarily include that as income, but likely doesn't apply here. Um, just bumping to some other questions, because they've given sort of rapid fire questions, sure. given the scenario. Uh, their ex-spouse hasn't worked for 16 years and would need to do some upgrading to go back to work in their previous profession. They're now nearing 50 years old. They indicate there's probably little desire on the ex-spouse's part to go back and get that upgrading. Uh, what would be a reasonable imputed income? In your opinion, I think he can do better than minimum wage. He's got a valid driver's license, his own vehicle, fluent in English, post-secondary diplomas, etc. So, I mean, the answer here is we can't really give an, an opinion. Number one, we're not your lawyers. Uh, number two, we don't have all the facts and we don't need all the facts. Um, but it's probably reasonable to suggest that um, something beyond minimum wage, given the limited facts we know, is appropriate. And your instinct, listener, on this is probably right. The question is just how high that income should be. So if they haven't worked in 16 years, going back and looking at what they made 16 years ago might be a good starting uh, point. Um, thinking about inflation might be a good idea. Thinking about what skills they have now, thinking about what they could realistically do if they re-entered the workforce at 50. Do they have any disabilities? All those sort of things. I mean, I sort of think about life this way. If you're not sort of making, gosh, it's awfully tough. If, you, if you're just making, you know, sort of 50,000 a year, this is to be d disrespectful. If you're just sort of making 50,000 a year, it doesn't matter whether you live in Calgary or God forbid, you know, in terms of cost, from co a cost standpoint, Vancouver or Toronto or some major city, or you're living in uh, Cornerbrook, Newfoundland. If, if you're making $50,000, it's awfully tough, even at $50,000 to get by in life these days, sadly, because of the cost of living and all those things. How can you pay your bills? How can you pay your rent? How can you put gas in your car? How can you load your grocery cart? How can you buy shirts and pants? and uh, underwear and all the things you need uh, on a daily basis to live your life. How can you buy that new pair of glasses that you need, you know, every four or five years? I can go see the dentist. How can you just function if you don't make sort of that limited amount of income? So I, I just put that out there. You're exactly right. You and I have had squarely this conversation before, Darren. And to the listener's question on imputation, because we know you're in Alberta, Alberta used to have some unusual rules on imputation of income. I won't get into it. We've covered that in a previous conversation. But given the Peters and Achui decision out of our Court of Appeal, it's basically we look under the uh, factors in the child support guidelines to say, what can this person do uh, in aligned with their general circumstances, meaning their work, health conditions, the things the listener sort of touches on here, saying, what can you do? And a court has the ability to impute income from there. But on your point, Darren, on the notion of 
if you're generally a functional person, we're sort of thinking 50 grand. I was in a mediation a couple of years ago with a senior family lawyer here in Calgary who said exactly that. I was dealing with another party and the other party had a full-time job, but it was their own business. And they were trying to make the argument that their business that was sort of moving only allowed them to earn an income of $7,000 a year. And the mediator jumped right on that person and said, I don't care what you're doing. I don't care who you are. If you're an able-bodied person sort of in this province, in our general economy, there's really no reason you can't get out there and earn 50 grand. And basically the mediator dragged that person along to generally agree. Yeah, if I sort of put my mind to it, I guess I could earn 50 grand and using that as a floor. Uh, just for our negotiations, we got a deal around that point. Unfortunately, our courts don't go that far in court. But Darren, I think you're exactly right in saying basic necessities of life. Your obligation as a parent is to basically provide for your children. How can you provide for your children if you can't provide for yourself? You did a great TikTok once saying, what income level do you have to make to avoid child support? And I think you did a live calculation on your TikTok and it was just, correct me if I'm wrong, just over $10,000, yeah. whatever the base income exemption is when we all file our taxes every year in Canada for hitting the threshold tax number. And you very humorously said, congratulations, if you only make 10 grand, you don't have to pay any support, thumbs up. But the conclusion was, and you were being sarcastic, let's try a little bit harder, folks not just for our kids, but for, for yourselves too. Let's be better. So good luck on that imputation of income piece. He has some historical training. Something else is going on there. Sounds like it's a reasonable thing to do. But as you say, Darren, to what level and at what number, we don't know. Okay. Well, uh, as always, we thank everyone for the questions. We thank you for coming back. Rob, let's, uh, let's come back soon. I think so. And you know what? New season, new show. Let's roll out of here with some smooth jazz. Darren Schmidt, your selection. Thank you for this lovely music we're hearing right now. I'm Rob Woodward, joined by Darren Schmidt. This has been Divorced and Done, and we'll see you soon.